righty. Well, uh, let us go ahead and jump into our sermon this morning. We're starting a new series for Advent called God and Sinners Reconciled. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1. Not, uh, not historically something that's been treated as a Christmas passage, but I think it's good for us from time to time to look at other passages in the Bible, Old and New Testament, to, and, and consider their relevance to uh, the, the grand overarching themes, and one of those being Christ's arrival, the meaning of Christmas. And so that's what we're doing as we are going to be looking at Colossians 1 the next few weeks to see what it has to teach us about Jesus, who is uh, as we say, the reason for the season, right? So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 1 this morning. I'll give you a minute to turn there so that you can follow along with us as we get started in the series and looking at this passage here in Colossians. So once again, Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. All right. Well, if we're all ready now, we're going to go ahead and get started in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. So a few centuries ago, there, uh, the Wesley brothers, along with a, another, with a group of young men, were gathering together as they were, uh, they were all university students, and they were gathering together in this small group Bible study to try to figure out why it was that their religion, why it was that their spirituality felt so empty. Why was it it felt so dry? Because they were all divinity students. They were, they were seminary students. They were there to study the scriptures. They were there to study theology, philosophy, uh, how to read and teach the Bible. And though they were all divinity students, they felt this own um, uh, coldness, should we say, about what they were, it was that they were studying. And so the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley, and this other group of men, they were gathering together, and they were praying, they were reading, they were studying, trying to figure out what is it that we are missing, right? Because it, it's, it, it, they just knew it's probably not supposed to be this way. There's probably supposed to be more to it. And so there's one evening in 1738, whenever Charles Wesley and another one of the young men of that group named William Holland got together, and William Holland brought with him uh, Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. He brought it with him, and he said, hey, let's just read this together. So why don't you, you go ahead and start. Read the introduction to it. And so they sat there, and Charles Wesley read the introduction to Luther's commentary on Galatians, which was uh, really a, an historical, groundbreaking work where Luther, uh, uh, as in a part of the Reformation movement, uh, showed how Paul taught about the gospel of God's grace 
in the book of Galatians. And so as Charles Wesley read this, William Holland uh, found a new faith, you might say. His soul came alive as he finally understood what the gospel meant and received it into his heart. Later on, he, he described the change that happened in himself, and even Charles Wesley noticed that something changed in William that night, but nothing changed for him. He went on. William got it that night, but he still didn't. There was still that emptiness. There was still that coldness, and so he goes on. But not too much longer uh, after that, not too much later, Charles Wesley was in church one morning, still wrestling through these things, remembering what he had read in that commentary on Galatians and thinking about the gospel and what is it, and then in church one Sunday, it just hit him. He got it, right? He got it that Sunday, and he left from that time, and he wrote in his journal. He said, I found it. I saw by faith I stood. Though of myself, I am always sinking in sin. So I went to bed, sensing my weakness, but finally confident in Christ. You see, why is it that two people can read the same book, one go home changed, and the other one stay the same? Why is it that one person, that, that two people can go to church, the same church, hear the same sermon, sing the same songs, one leave rejuvenated, renewed, changed, and the other leave the same? I'm sure you've experienced this before, how, how there was a time whenever you went to church or you heard a message and you got it. Or maybe someone else got it and you didn't. Why is that the case? What, what happens in, in, in those times? Well, what happens, what we need is we need to be able to come to a place where we truly receive the gospel into our hearts. Not just hearing the sermon being preached from the stage, but receiving the content of that message and the power of that message into our hearts so that it changes our lives and we can leave that day saying, I got it. You see, what I want for each one of us today as we start this series is to be able to leave with that same sentiment that Charles Wesley had and wrote about in his journal here where he said, I left that day aware of my weakness but confident in Christ. That's what I want. That's what I want for myself that's what I want for you guys. That's what I want for our church today and throughout this Christmas season as we, as we celebrate and we go through the fun, right? And we have the songs and the meals and the parties and so on. All those things are wonderful, but they will end up being empty if we do not leave more confident in Christ. And so what we're going to do this morning as we consider just Paul's introduction to his letter and to this first chapter is we're going to look at three tests. We're going to look at three tests that we can see in this passage that we can use to look at our own life to see, have we received the gospel? Do we get it? Okay? And learn, get some help for how we might receive it better. We're going to look at the joy test, the power test, and then the hope test. So let's look at the joy test as we get started. So like I said, Wesley wrote that in his journal in 1738, how he got it. He finally got it. He, he was excited. He was aware, still aware of his weakness, but confident in Christ. He wrote that in May of 1738. A year later, about, he wrote the hymn that we sang this morning, or I don't know if we sang it yet. Did we sing Heart yet? Yeah, the, the hymn that we sang this morning, Heart the Herald Angels Sing. He, he wrote about a year later. And the third verse, uh, I'm sorry, no, one of the first verses of Heart the Herald Angels Sing says this. It says, Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. The change that had happened in his life 
led as, as it continued to sink into his heart and, 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 and saturate his soul. It led to, about a year later, him writing those words about joyfulness, joy in his own life and joy across the world. And we talk about Christmas time being a season of joy, right? But Christmas time, if we truly understand Christmas, is a, is, is a joyful time, and it can uh, plant incredible joy into our hearts, but for reasons that go far beyond what is typically presented to us in the world and in our culture. You know, whenever we talk about Christmas time joy and so on, and we see it in our movies and, 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 and commercials and so on in our culture today, it's just, it's just emptiness, right? It's just, well, this is just the season of joy. Why are we joyful about it? Just because you're supposed to be, right? This is the time of love and of gift-giving and of celebrating. Why? What are we celebrating? Like, what am I loving? Where, where did this love come from? Why should I give gifts and be happy about it just to get more things, right? Well, just because. Because that's the time of year that it is, and so we make ourselves do it, right? It's, it's very empty. There's no reason behind it. But here's the thing, is that if you truly understand Christmas and the gospel of Christmas, well, then it implants a real joy in your heart. So that words like what Charles Wesley wrote, joyful all ye nations rise, is something that's not, that you don't just sing going through the motions, but something that's true in your own life and your soul as well. Here's our first big point, and I'm going to explain as we go. Our first big point is this. You have received the gospel when joy enters your heart. You have received the gospel when joy empty, uh, enters your heart. Many people conceive of Christianity as something being very dull, very cold, or boring. Right? Many people conceive of Christianity as, as being something that is just drudgery and uh, just merely following rules, going through motions, right? You know, just think of it this way, some, a way to make it obvious. In our media today, whether it be movies, TV shows, what is the trope that is always present whenever there's someone who is being presented in the story as a really religious person? Is it typically a, a sweet, joyful, warm person or is it someone who is presented that they're cold, they're, they're bitter, they're very angry, they're frustrated with the world around them, and they're frustrated with you, right? That's always the trope that's offered to us in our culture of, of what a really religious or what a you know, fundamentalist Christian looks like. They're, they're these very angry people, and they're, they're cold, and they, they're definitely not marked by what we would say Christmas joy, right? And that's, and that's because that reflects the way that most of us in our culture, maybe some of us, often consider and, and, and approach Christianity as though, you know, if I get really serious about this, it's going to be something that's just going to suck all the good things out of my life. But it's going to tell me to stop doing all the things I love or because I'm going to have to start getting really serious about following these rules and, and being a really moral person and looking down on the people around me who are not as good as I am. So often we, we carry these tropes in our mind, but the thing is that whenever someone truly receives the gospel, whenever you truly receive the gospel, whenever you truly understand the meaning of what Christmas is all about, we might say, well, then that person who receives that gospel is filled with a powerful joy, a deep and powerful joy, something that is not just shallow happiness or positive pie-in-the-sky thinking, but a joy that is deep within the center of your being that, that gives you the motivation that you need, that, emp that empowers you with the motivation that you need, with the strength that you need to face the hardships of life, but then also to be able to have the, uh, the spirit that can celebrate like a child. 
This is the kind of joy that comes into your life whenever you truly receive the gospel. Listen to the way that Paul describes these Colossians and how they've received the gospel. He said to them in verse 4, he said, When have we heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for all of the saints? And once again, later down in verse 8, he, when talking about Epaphras, he says, Epaphras has told us, being uh, Paul and Timothy, he's told us about your love in the Spirit. You see, these Colossians, once the gospel entered their life, it didn't make them colder. It made them warmer. It didn't make them harder. It made them softer, more approachable, right? And it didn't make them bitter and, 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 and woe is me, woe is the world, but it, it brought joy into their life, which is what he, he's getting at when he's talking about the love that they have. Right, this love that filled their hearts for one another, for all the saints, the love of the Spirit that was poured into them, the faith in God that they had. He's talking about a life-changing joy. Now, what does this mean for us? If you have received the gospel, then joy enters your heart. Well, then what it means for you, as you are trying to just figure out how to receive the gospel, or if you're, you're already a Christian walking with God, and you're trying to think, okay, well, you know, I struggle from time to time really experiencing and feeling this joy in my heart, what do I need to do to embrace it more? Well, in order to receive the joy that comes from the gospel, the first step that you're going to have to do is reject the shallow joys of the world. In order to receive the joy of the gospel, you're first going to have to reject the shallow joys of the world. It's similar to if you want to have, if you want to fill your belly with a great meal, you don't go stop at McDonald's on the way. Right? Or you, you, don't, you don't eat a bunch of potato chips on the way. If you want to fill yourself with a great meal, with, with fine food, you don't fill yourself up on junk food before. And it's the same thing when it comes to filling our heart with the joy of the gospel rather than the joys offered to us by the world. If you go throughout your life, day by day, seeking after all the shallow joys that our culture and the world tells you are the things that will really make your life good, well then, friends, you're not going to have the capacity to then seek after the joy that comes from the gospel, right? It's the equivalent of filling your spirit with spiritual junk food rather than the fine, true, wonderful, exquisite, real joy that is offered to us in the gospel, you see, and wherever you look around the world, you can see the truth of this because we have this problem in our society today. It's this strange dilemma that we're living with. It's a dilemma of this. On the one hand, we are by far the most wealthy, the most healthy, and the most decadent society that there has ever existed in human history. Right? Right? By far. I mean, just think of it. Even if you are middle class today, if you were to trade places with somebody from just 50 years ago who was in the 1% of the world's wealth, your status of living, your quality of life would go down, right? I mean, because of where we are now and how much are, you'd immediately lose your iPhone if you were to be in the 1% of the world 50 years ago, even 20 years ago, right? And so just think of how much our quality of life is tied to those things, or much less uh, the advances that we have in modern medicine and so on, Right? So we live in by far the most decadent, the most healthy, the most secure society that has ever existed in the history of the world. Yet, we live in one of the most depressed and anxious societies that has ever existed in the history of the world. Right? Just this past year, we had a record number of people who died from opioid overdoses, 100,000 in the U.S. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. Something is broken in our society. And I would submit to you that 
there's multiple reasons, but let me suggest to you that there is one that goes deeper than any socioeconomic or political reason that we might point to. It is a spiritual crisis. It is the despair, the anxiety, the depression that happens in people whenever you tell them that the good life is in all of these shallow joys that is offered to us by a decadent society. You see, some of you guys are here today because you've already experienced that emptiness. You've already experienced that emptiness in your life. You've recognized the emptiness of it, of what the world tells you is the good life. Uh, uh, you've already experienced the emptiness of, 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 of partying, or of climbing the corporate ladder, of, of working your tail off trying to increase your affluence or increase your status, whatever else. You've already experienced the emptiness that comes with trying to work up your appearance, whether it be through your literal physical appearance, whether it be through what people conceive of you through social media, whatever else. You've already experienced the emptiness of those things, and so you're searching. Some of you guys, that's, the, that's already the reason that you're here today. And so what you need to do is this, reject those shallow joys. Another word we might use for this is repent. Repent from seeking your joy and all those things, and then turn and receive joy from Christ. This is why it's so important for us to consider this at Christmas, because commercialized Christmas, which is sold to us as being so joyful and happy and loving, it will sell to you only more of the same things. Commercialized Christmas will only sell to you more of the same things that have added to your emptiness, more of the shallow joys of our decadent world. Rather, true Christmas will give you the gift of everlasting joy that comes through the gospel. So there's the joy test. Then we look at the power test. Because Christian joy is something that is a state of the heart. That's what I was getting at there just now, uh, talking about you know, the, the satisfaction that we might feel in our life and, and uh, the, the steadfastness through hard times. So a Christian joy is something that is a state of our heart. It is something that we experience in our soul. However, what we must understand is that Christian joy, true Christian joy, goes far past just being a, a, a happy feeling or the warm fuzzies that we get, but it is a power that brings about real difference in your life and real difference in the world. This is our second big point. So the first one was about receiving the gospel. You know you've received the gospel when joy enters your heart. Our second big point is you have received the gospel when a life-changing power enters your heart. So you know you've received the gospel if one, joy has entered your heart, and two, if a life-changing power has entered your heart. Like I said, with that joy, comes a power that changes both your life and, change, and can change the world around you. It's not something that just makes you happy. You know, joy is not just a spiritual antidepressant. It is a power that enters your heart and then brings about real difference. Can, just consider what Paul says. Uh, listen to what he says in verses 5 and 6. He says, you have already heard about this hope in the word of truth. The gospel that has come to you, it is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it. So a couple of things. Consider this about this life-changing power. First, what Paul says. He says, this life-changing power in this joy has entered your heart since, what did he say? Since you have embraced the word of truth. That is Paul's phrase there. He says the word of truth. So the first thing that we need to consider about this life-changing power is that there is information and intellectual content to it. 
Whenever we talk about the life-changing power of the gospel, or just the gospel itself, and, and God's grace in and of itself, we're not just talking about some mystical, hidden knowledge, but we're talking about something that is communicated to us through God's word and through preaching and through, uh, and, and through the church community. Right, So there's information that comes with it. In other words, something that your mind can embrace and then take confidence in. It's also not just warm feelings. So often, like I said, you guys experience the emptiness of the world around you, and so you think, okay, maybe I should try out church. And you come here looking for just a good experience. Maybe it's a good experience through thinking, I just need some more friends, and church is a good place to make friends, and, and hey, I support that. Church is a great place to make friends, okay? And, and so you're thinking, I just need a good experience and the warm feelings that come from making new friends and being in a positive community. Now, look, you might get some of those things, but it's not going to fill the emptiness. You might think, you know, people at church are always really excited, and they, and they sing together, and I, sometimes I see them crying, or they have their hands up, and so I need some of that. And so we come, and we try to get this emotional experience out of the worship, thinking, I need that to enter my heart, and it'll fill the emptiness. No, it won't. No, it won't. Because, you see, what brought about joy and life-changing power in the Colossians and what's going to bring that about in your heart as well is not just an emotional experience. It is not some mystical experience that you need. It is not just a therapeutic trick. What you need is that word of truth. You need the content of truth that is being communicated to you through those songs that we sing. Whenever you lift your hands, it is not just because the music swells or we change keys and it feels good, but instead, those hands should lift in response to the beautiful truth being sung through the, through the song, right? What you need is not just that experience in worship, but you need an experience of the gospel being proclaimed. You need that word of truth. You need that information to come into your life. And then like a seed, it comes down into your heart and it brings about what does Paul say? Fruit. You see, so this information, it's not something that, um, you know, do you know a lot of useless facts? There's some people who just know a lot of useless facts. They know all kinds of things that don't do you any good. They don't change your life or give you anything to really base your life upon at all. They're, as we say, useless. But what you receive in the gospel is not useless facts. What you receive in the gospel is not even just, it's not data. It's not just historical information that you need to know. But what you get in that word of truth, with that intellectual content, you receive power as well. That's what Paul, what Paul says. He says, this word of truth came into your heart, and it's producing fruit, and it is changing the world. Useless facts don't change the world, and they don't produce fruit. Only something with power, with vitality, can do that, and that's what the gospel is. So first of all, the gospel that brings about life-changing power in your heart is something that there's information, intellectual content to it that you need to receive. You don't just need a good experience. You need that word of truth, but then you need to understand that once that word of truth makes its way down into your heart, it's like a seed that has, that has vitality within it, and that once it implants into the soil of your heart, it brings about fruit. It brings about change. It's something that can change not just your inner character, but look at what Paul says. He says that it is growing all over the world, that this is something that can change the world itself. Now, what does that mean, though, that the gospel is like a seed that once it plants into your heart, it brings about fruit? Well, Paul's just speaking in metaphors here. He's speaking in metaphors for what he means by fruit is character change. It means that you actually start to change as a person. 
And it's something that happens deeper than just behavior modification, right? You see, you can start to change your behaviors and change your habits and implement new schedules into your life, but leave your inner heart and, and, and the character and, and the real being of who you are completely untouched. But the gospel is something that works from the inside out. It's a power that works its way deep into your heart, and then it brings about that fruit of character change, right? You are actually being made different. Your heart, your soul, your personality is being renewed. The gospel tells us, uh, what Paul tells about the gospel in, later in another book is that the gospel is something that makes us a new creation, it changes us from what we were before into a new creation, into something new, right? It's not just like coming into a building and renovating it, but it is over time replacing every piece of wood, every section of brick from that building and making it all new. So that one day, not just, not just the painting on the walls is different, but the entire structure is a new creation. That's what the gospel does in your life. Over time, as it bears fruit and as it changes the world, as it bears fruit in your heart and then changes your world, as it bears fruit in your heart and it changes your family's world, and then maybe even your neighborhood, your workplaces, and so on. The gospel has life-changing power. And you know that you have received the gospel when you start to experience that life-changing power in your world around you. But how many of us have been going to church or have been hearing about the gospel, have been hearing about the Bible for weeks, months, or years now, and there's been no life-changing power. Friend, if that is you, you might not have actually received that word of truth yet. You might have been hearing it, but not really trying to take it into your heart and make it something that you base your life upon. And so, friends, what this means is that you must embrace the life-changing power of the gospel. Embrace that life-changing power. Do you ever feel like your outside is better than your inside? You know what I mean by that? You ever feel like your outside is really better than your inside? Similar to, you know, if you've ever been to a theme park of any sort, whether it be like a Disney World, a Six Flags, a Universal Orlando, and you go walking through the theme park, and it's so cool, right? It's amazing. You're walking through, and they've got all these really cool buildings, or maybe a castle, or uh, you're, you're walking through uh, whatever town Harry Potter's in, and, you know, you're looking at all these things, and it's amazing. It's just mind-blowing, and you're completely immersed in this world, and you're thinking, wow, this is impressive. But have you ever seen what it looks like on the other side? of those little streets and walkways that you're allowed to be in. Have you ever seen what it looks like on the other side? It's not impressive at all. Why? Because it's just facades, right? They just build a really impressive outside. <laughs> they just build a really good-looking outside, a really good front side. And on the back, if you're, it looks like warehouses. It looks like corporate offices, right? It doesn't look very impressive at all. And do you ever feel sometimes like your life is that way? Like you're trying to build up impressive, good-looking facades where the people who see from the outside are impressed with you and think, wow, that's that, that guy, that girl, they've got it together. Wow, their family really has it together. They're, they're crushing it at their job. They must be really successful, right? Because you're building that facade, but on the inside, if they could really see, it's not that impressive. In fact, it's kind of empty. You know, let me give you a more positive example. This building that we're in from the outside, not that good looking. Right? Like, praise the Lord for, for where we are here. He has really blessed us. But on the outside, not the most impressive-looking place. But once you come inside and you see, you see this, 
You see you people. You see this congregation. You see this community of people where there's, where there's love and there's joy, and you all are supporting one another, and you're building lives together, and you're, and you're developing networks of friendship, and you're, and you're partnering together in, in, in the gospel, or you're, you're working together, and, and all these different things. On the outside, it's not that impressive. Once you come in here and you see this community of us, of you guys, then it's beautiful beyond anything that we could paint or do out there. You see, what I want for our lives is that regardless of how impressive or unimpressive our outsides look, that our insides are beautiful beyond description, just like you are, just like this congregation is. But so often it's the other way around. And so often we're focused just on building up that really impressive outside to hide the emptiness that is beneath. What you need instead is the life-changing power of the gospel. That's what Paul's just talking about and what he's thanking God for with these Colossians. He's saying, he's talking about their insights. He's talking about their faith, their hope, their love, and he's praising God. And at the end of this chapter, he says, and it is those things that I'm giving all, putting all of my energy and all of my strength into that it would just continue to grow. Because that's what we need. We all need that kind of a power in our lives. But the question is, how do we get it? Well, let's look at the Colossians. Where did it come from for them? Where did they get that, that faith and that love and that kind of life-changing power that brought about fruit that made their insides far more beautiful than anything they could present to the outside world? What was it that gave it to them? It's this. Here's the key. Paul says in verse 5, because, so this is right after he's praising God for the faith and the, and the love in their lives, he says, because, here, so here's where it came from, of the hope reserved for you in heaven. Where did the, the power come from? Where did the joy come from? Where did the love and the faith come from? He said it came from this place, from the hope that they had reserved for them in heaven. What does that mean? It means this. They had this great reward that they were looking forward to that in other translations, it says that is stored up for them in heaven. What they were looking forward to was this great reward, this gift that they had received. Now, notice what this doesn't mean. They were not filled with life-changing power, or they were not joyful because they were working for a reward that they might get one day. You know, it's the difference between if I were to, to, to hire you for a job or someone was to hire you to do some kind of labor, and they say, you know, I need you to accomplish this task. And once you accomplish this task or you fulfill this job, this contract, then you're going to receive this kind of payment, this sum, on the other side of that. And so until you complete the contract, until you finish the task, that money's not yours, is it? You don't have it. It's not being stored up for you because it's not yours yet. It's, it's something that you're working for, working towards, and then once you complete the job, then you get the money. But on the other hand, if you were to receive a, a big financial gift, if you were to receive an inheritance that was just given to you, okay, it is yours, and, and you were told this is going to be stored up for you. This is going to be placed for you. It's your money. It's not going anywhere. You don't have to do anything to receive it. It's yours, and it is, it's waiting for you in the bank. You see, that's two very different things, working towards receiving a reward that we can then put in our bank, but then living your life knowing that it, that, that gift, that reward is there. It's stored for you. It's waiting for you, and it, it, it's in the bank once you get to the day that you'll be able to, uh, to, to cash it in. What Paul tells them is that the hope that they have, the reward that they have, what does he say in, in our 
uh, translation here, he said, it's being reserved for you in heaven. Like I said, in other translations, it says, it is being stored up for you in heaven. He's talking about that second kind. He's not talking about a reward that, that if they accomplish the task, if they prove they're good enough, if they prove that they are worthy enough, then they will receive that hope in heaven. He says, the hope is already yours. The hope is already there. The reward is yours. The reward is there. It's just being stored up for you while you're, while you're here. What was that hope and that reward that is being stored up for them, that they don't have to earn, that they don't have to work for, but that is just a gift for them? It is the gospel of God's grace, Paul says. It is the gospel of God's grace. What is the gospel of God's grace? The gospel of God's grace is the person of Jesus. Because if you go all the way to the end of Colossians 1, in verses 28 and 29, Here's what Paul says. He said, after talking about the gospel and talking about God's grace for this whole chapter, here's what he says to them. We proclaim him. All of a sudden, the language changes. He's been talking about this thing called the gospel. He's been talking about this message called the good news. And then he says, notice, it, it seems subtle, but it's a huge, it, uh, it, it's something you should take note of. He says, we proclaim him. Because that gospel is not just impersonal information. What the gospel is that is being proclaimed is the good news about a person. It is the good news about a person who, uh, who you can enter into relationship with. The gospel is the good news that Christ has accomplished for us. He has earned the merit. He has fulfilled the contract that was necessary so that you might receive that reward. So that the hope that those, those Colossians have might be your hope as well. And you never could have earned that hope on your own. You never could have uh, fulfilled the contract that was necessary because we were separated from God because of our own sin. But Jesus Christ fulfilled the contract. Jesus Christ, he accomplished the work. He, he did the work. He accomplished the reward so that it might then be given to you as a gift. And you see, if it were not for his advent and Christmas... If it were not for him condescending himself by coming down onto earth as a human, living the life that we should have all lived, but then taking on the death that we deserved, then that reward never would have been ours. It never would have been something that we could have said, that's reserved for me. You know, on my good days and on my worst, that reward is still reserved for me. Whenever life is going great, and whenever life is going really poorly, that reward is still reserved for me. It is still being stored up. Whenever I've accomplished something wonderful and whenever I've really screwed things up, whenever I've given into temptation, maybe I've fallen into sin, that reward is still being stored up for me. No matter what the world does to me, that reward is still being stored up for me. Why? Because it was accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ and his work. And whenever you receive not just the data, not just the information, but you receive the gift of his own person, Whenever you receive the gift of coming into a relationship with him, laying yourself down before his cross, rejecting, like I said, the shallow joys of the world, repenting from those things and just saying, and saying to him, I just want you. I want your joy. I want the reward that you accomplished for me. I want you to be my savior. I don't want to be my own savior. I want you to be my king. I don't want any other king. Well, then whenever you receive that, the gift of relationship with Jesus Christ, then that is what makes the gospel a power that can change your life, bring about fruit, and change the world. The third big point and test is this. You receive the gospel when you love Jesus. 
You have received the gospel when you love Jesus. I think that this might be the most core difference that separates the person who is a true Christian in relationship with Jesus and the person who has just been hearing information. The person who is a disciple of Jesus Christ and the person who's just trying to live a good life. What is the core fundamental difference between the two? One of them loves Jesus, and the other one might admire, might respect even, we could say. It might think there's some positive benefits to life to following what he said. But they don't have that love, that, that not just admiration, but adoration. Their joy isn't coming from him. And so you need to rest in the gospel of God's grace the good news that Jesus Christ has accomplished that reward for you and that he now gives it to you as a gift that comes with himself. Entering into this relationship where, where he becomes your savior and Lord, where he becomes your friend, he even says in the gospels, as well as your king. You need to rest in the gospel of God's grace so that you might love Jesus. Don't you often approach life as if every situation were a value test. How often do we do that in life? We approach a, a challenging task with our job, maybe a social situation that we go into, or, 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 or something else in our life, and we approach all these different things as a test of our value, right? Like how I perform at work, how I do in this you know, athletic event or endeavor, how I do, maybe even in my family, right? But how I do in these different areas of my life they reflect not just on what they are in, in, in and of themselves, but they reflect on, on my value as a person. And so we go through life so anxious. We go through life where everything is not just a, a, an athletic endeavor or a, 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 something that we have to do at our job, but it is a test of what we are really worth. And so along with that comes so much stress. So much anxiety. It, it, along with it comes so many things which are the opposite of joy. Why do we approach life like that so often? Because we're not in relationship with Jesus. Because we're not loving Jesus and receiving his love, right? Because we started to tell ourselves and to believe that our value does come from performance at work, from the appearance of my family, from the appearance of myself, Right? Or from, from what I can do in this next stage of life that I'm preparing for. And so everything in your life becomes a value test instead of this, instead of just resting in, and instead of just embracing in what the love of Christ says about your value, instead of what, what the love of Jesus and what he has done for you says about what you are worth to him. Because just think of how much your life would change if you could start embracing and resting in God's love for you, which has been proven for you in the cross and the resurrection, rather than looking to people's opinion, rather than looking to your coworkers' perception of you, your neighbors, or your family's expectations. How much would your life change? How much more freedom would you have? How much more joy? Just like we started the sermon with. How much more joy would you have in your life? How do you really get that, that freedom? Friends, you must love Christ. You must see that what he has done for you is not just useful to you in order to get something, but that he himself is useful. 
I mean, that, that he himself is, is worthwhile, that he himself is beautiful, that he is glorious, that he is more worthwhile and valuable to you, he himself, than anything else in this world. And whenever you truly do begin then to love him and to love God, well, then you will know that the gospel really has made its way into your heart, and that is bringing about change. This is something that I experienced in my own life. For so long in my life, I was looking to my performance to be what gave me my value. And so I tried my best to be a good, a good kid, right? A good kid in my parents' household so that through my, my performance as a moral person, I would receive their acceptance, my teacher's acceptance, my coach's acceptance. In sports, it wasn't just about running the ball, right? It wasn't just about getting a first down, but it was about receiving approval that would validate my worth. You see, and, so, and then even whenever it came to God, Whenever I looked at God, I was just trying to work and work and work and, and do what I was being told in church and so on so that God might just say, okay, you've done enough to be counted as good. I didn't really love God. I just wanted to work for his approval so that he would then say, okay, you're good. You're worth something. But it wasn't until that time, and it's a longer story, that, that God broke my heart and that he, he poured his grace into my soul and just washed me in his love, that then for the first time in my life, it wasn't just about, okay, I've got to work in order to gain his approval, but I just said, you know what, I love him. I love him. And though many years of growth and learning had to come after that, and I still very often would fall back into my old ways of trying to earn God's love or trying to prove my worthwhileness, (laughs) my worthiness to people around me through my performance, though I still fell into that, Many times, over time, God started to show me and remind me, hey, Aaron, you know, I love you because I love you. You are worthwhile to me because you are my child, not because of what you've done today or this week. And over, so over time, that love that, has, that had planted itself into my heart for God grew. And so in your own life, whenever you're starting to struggle and whenever you're starting to wonder and worry, very often what's happening is you're forgetting the gospel of God's love for you. You're forgetting that he loves you because he's your child, and then allowing that love that God has poured into your heart to return back in love to him and adoring him. You've forgotten that he's all you need. And so you're starting to look at everything in your life. You're starting to look at that situation that you're in as not just a task, a job, something that needs to be done, but you're looking at it as a value test of who you are. And so the mark of a mature Christian is this, is that every time you start to struggle in your life and, and so on, you don't just say, well, I need to work harder. You don't just say, well, I, I need to be better. Those might be, those might be helpful. <laughs> right? You might not be working very hard, so you might need to be working harder. But fundamentally, at the core, you understand that it's always this, I need to love God better. So then a true Christian is someone who doesn't go into every situation concerned with it being a test of their value. Instead, you start to go through life and facing life for the joy of it and for the adventure that there is that God has placed before you. Let's pray. Lord, in your word through Paul, you said that the Colossians had this life-changing power in their hearts and that they had this fruit, this faith, this love, that had come to them in the Spirit. Lord, we recognize that 
we don't need just empty emotionalism. We don't need just therapeutic tricks. Lord, we don't just need new changes in our habit. But Father, fundamentally beneath and beyond all these things, what we need is your love poured into our heart. Lord, we recognize that maybe many of us here today are uh, aware of the emptiness of life. We're perhaps even aware of an emptiness in ourselves. We recognize that we've been buying into what the world says about the shallow joys offered to us in a decadent society. That we've been working so hard to make our outside impressive while our inside is quite empty. Father, if we recognize this for the first time today, or if we came here because we recognized it, Lord, do not let us leave still walking down that same path. Lord, in your loving kindness, let that lead us to repentance. Let your love and your kindness lead us to the place where we we can say confidently, I can reject the shallow joys because your joy is so much better. I can reject what the world has been telling me, what I've been telling myself, because the love that I receive from you is so much better. Lord, let us leave here today with what we sing about at Christmas so often, but let us receive it in a real way and in the way that is everlasting, that joy. Lord, let us receive that joy in the gospel. And let us love here today saying, I truly love God. I truly love my Savior, friend, King, Jesus Christ. Maybe some of us will say, for the first time, I love him. Father, we ask that you would do this work in your spirit, which can make every sermon and every song that we sing, and only through which every song and every sermon might be effective. We pray this in your name.